Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Columnist, a role that often takes me abroad for conversations with some of the people, diplomats, policymakers, writers, who are shaping the global debate. As a columnist for the Financial Times, most of my discussions are off the record, then used as background for my columns. With this show, however, I'll be getting more of my contacts to go on the record, so that listeners and subscribers can join the conversation. This week's edition comes from Hong Kong, where I recently met up with Frank de Cutter, who is Professor of Humanities at the University of Hong Kong and the author of an award-winning trilogy of books on Mao's China. His latest work has a distinct contemporary relevance. It's called How to Be a Dictator, a topic that has particular resonance at a time when strongman leaders are coming back into fashion all over the world. The book is subtitled The Cult of Personality in the 20th Century. So I started by asking Frank de Cutter why the cult of personality is so central to dictatorship. I set out doing a book on the cult of personality and I came to the conclusion that the cult of personality isn't just some sort of interesting, fringe, slightly odd, eccentric phenomenon. It's at the very heart of dictatorship. Every single one of them has a cult of personality. Why? Because ultimately there is a paradox that runs through modern dictatorship, and that is that a dictator must create the illusion of popular consent. The 20th century, by all definitions, is the age of democracy. Dictators must appear to appeal to the vast majority of the population. Of course, they don't. Uh, Dictators know that they will fail at the ballot box, but they must create this illusion of popular consent, and they do that through the cult of personality. So the cult of personality is is central to it, but I wonder about the actual personalities of the the individuals involved, because reading the chapters in your book, you know, the one about Ceausescu in Romania, for example, or even Kim Il-sum in North Korea, they're not obviously charismatic people to begin with, but they turn into these sort of monsters around which a cult of personality is built. So yes. are these people all psychopaths in some ways, or is it yes. circumstances that's created them? Yeah, so there's a wonderful chapter in um, that great historian of the Soviet Union, Robert Service. His biography of Stalin, which must be the best one, has a chapter called The Cult of Unpersonality. He notes how Stalin really didn't have much of a personality. Nobody knew anything about him when he appears twice a year uh, on Red Square in Moscow. He's a very remote, distant, stolid figure, you know, with his great coat standing placidly. Few people know anything about his life. But that's precisely what he wanted. 
He wanted to tower above his peers and his rivals above all, and he wanted to make sure that nobody really truly knew anything about his private life. So personality is not a requirement when it comes to the cult of personality. At the heart of the cult of personality is a very basic value, loyalty. What dictators want is not only the illusion of popular support, but they want loyalty. Most of all, they want loyalty to their person, not loyalty to a creed. So in other words, that loyalty matters more than ideology, so to speak. Now, was Stalin born bad? Was Hitler born bad? I think ultimately, as we well know, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. To some extent, you have to recognize, I think, that all of them have extraordinary skills and are extraordinarily lucky and operate in extraordinary um, different circumstances. Hitler worked at his um, theatrical skills. He knew how to address a crowd. He could hold 8,000 people. You try it. I tried. Not that easy. <laughs> now, I'm not trying to say that skill is the only thing that matters, but luck and the ability to use luck is absolutely essential. And most of the people you describe establish a dictatorship. I mean, they don't inherit this. They, they exactly. build this themselves. Yes. Obviously, in the contemporary world, people are now very on edge, some of them yes. anyway, about what's going on politically. So yeah. what, are, what are the signs? It strikes me, that I think you write somewhere in the book yeah. uh, that one of the first things they do is go off to the press, that the, the, yes. the free press is yes, not, yeah. not acceptable. So, yes, you cut down uh, on the press. That's the first thing you eliminate. In the march on Rome, Mussolini, 1922, the first thing the fascists do in any city on the way to Rome is to destroy the printing machines. So you curtail freedom of speech. And then, of course, everything else. But let's look at it this way. What, what is a dictator? What is a dictatorship? It is an attempt to concentrate all power in the hands of either an individual or the party that that individual represents. The opposite of that is separation of powers, which is a very difficult thing to achieve. All dictators scoff at separation of powers. They believe that an independent judicial system is a charade. They believe that freedom of press is harmful, is bourgeois, backwards, communist, you name it. It's not something that one wishes to achieve. So what they do quite systematically, all of them, is curtail every single freedom and get rid of every aspect of the separation of powers. And they tend to do that within a year or two or three. And how important is the role of sheer fear? I mean, you mentioned earlier that the, that they need at least the appearance of public support. But in the end, does it rest on terror? No, I think fear is absolutely essential. This is where you might consider my work to be controversial. I simply do not buy statements by historians who tell us that millions adored Stalin or millions adored Hitler or millions adored Mao. These are statements that simply cannot be verified. If the first casualty in any dictatorship is freedom of expression, then you do not know what people think. It may very well be that millions generally did adore Stalin, but the whole point of a cult of personality is that all, all must stand up and acclaim the man in charge. The whole point of a cult of personality is not to create love, but to sow confusion, to crush the dignity of individuals, to compel all to stand up and at least produce uh, the illusion of support for the man in charge. So we simply don't know. And fear is absolutely essential. And there's one rare occasion in the book where the fear breaks in the Ceausescu camp. 
Exactly. So here we have foreign observers who tell us that Ceausescu is the human face of socialism. <laughs> He's the man who's achieved something that's very different from the rest of the communist camp. Till, of course, roughly around Christmas 1989, when Ceausescu addresses um, what are supposed to be supporters of him from the balcony of the party headquarters in the capital of Bucharest. But instead of cheering him, as they should, people start booing and shouting. And he's taking it back. He doesn't understand. His wife intervenes, tells him to be quiet. But the fear is broken. The crowd sees that Ceausescu falters and starts making concessions. He's willing to increase the pay for factory workers. At that moment, when they see this man faltered, you know, this is transmitted on television, that jeering turns into a riot. And of course, across the country, television screens go blank. Everybody understands that there's a revolution uh, underway. That's, that's the moment where that regime falters, when the fear breaks. Mm. And looking around the world today, do you see many dictators? Well, again, if we go back to that distinction between separation of powers and concentration of power, one must admit that there are a great many more countries today than 20 years ago, 40 years ago, or 60 years ago, which have at least the semblance of separation of powers. Uh, let's take a very clear-cut case, Putin generally described as a dictator, but nonetheless, we must also see that there is a constitution. Now, I'm not talking about the constitution that Stalin passed in 1936, referred to as the Stalin constitution. Every dictator has a constitution, but a constitution that describes Russia as a federated republic. There is an independent judicial system. There are opposition candidates. You cannot accuse Putin of undermining independent judicial systems if there isn't one. You cannot accuse him of hounding opposition candidates, if there is no opposition, what kind of Stalin resurrected would applaud Putin for allowing an independent judicial system to exist in the first place? What am I trying to say? I'm trying to say that there is in Turkey, under Erdogan, in Russia, under Putin, there is something that resembles separation of powers and the strongmen may not like it, but they have to operate within that system. Take the case again of Erdogan, a major opposition candidate has been elected and runs the capital of Turkey. What an achievement. What dictator would ever tolerate that? Uh, you know, what, what kind of dictator would agree that an opposition candidate can run the country's capital? Could you see the PRC hold elections? Could you see Pyongyang being run by an opposition candidate of Kim III? I doubt that very much. So it's again about whether power is concentrated in the hands of an individual or one party state, or whether there is some sort of separation of powers. If there is, then we should talk about de-democratization. Putin is guilty of de-democratization. Erdogan is guilty of de-democratization. They undermine those very frail institutions that come with separation of powers, but they are not dictators. But I noticed that the two places that you imply do kind of meet the conditions because they don't have separation of powers are both in East Asia, the People's Republic of China and North Korea. Take both of them briefly. I mean, North Korea, it's become more and more anomalous, you know, certainly in terms of this incredible cult of personality. And yet it seems to go on and on. What's the history of the end of dictatorships, does it give any hope for how that place might change? 
Well, ultimately, I think the book is hopeful in, in the sense that dictators operating within one-party states with no separation of powers, meaning no independent judicial system, no checks and balances, no opposition candidates, no free press, simply don't get a lot of news about what's happening in their own country or elsewhere. They end up teetering somehow between paranoia and hubris. They surround themselves through the cult of personality with sycophants. They become increasingly isolated. So the paranoia is the fear that there is a foreign power out there, a black hand trying to subvert and overthrow the regime. But the hubris is that dictators begin believing in that cult of personality. They start believing that they truly are great men with great thoughts who can somehow see the path ahead. When it comes to Xi Jinping, I think the mistake that people have made by people, I mean, observers in general, uh, but of course also foreign governments, entrepreneurs who invested in the PRC, is to think that somehow after Mao, this country would open up, would begin uh, building up the rule uh, of law, would start separating out powers, but none of them, at no point, whether from Deng Xiaoping or Chiang Zemin onwards, all the way to Xi Jinping, has ever expressed that wish. Quite the opposite. Quite the opposite. Deng Xiaoping made it crystal clear that there would never be separation of powers. He made a steely determination to maintain a monopoly over power crystal clear when he sent in the tanks in 1989. All of this goes all the way to Xi Jinping. Uh, there's a great uh, consistency there in the determination to not share power with anyone and not open up your press not open up your country. It's also a classic dictatorship, yeah. but of a different kind. And she, if he has this admiration for Mao, how possible is it, though, to go back to, you know, you're the preeminent historian of Maoism, but China was such a different place then. He can't really go back to a Maoist no, system, you, can he? No, you can't. But ultimately, the impulses are the same. I mean, let's look at it. Dictatorships do change over time. They vary a great deal. But the impulse to maintain a monopoly of power is always very much the same. But ultimately, uh, the playbook is very limited. And, and that's the point I wish to make. We think or see Xi Jinping as someone who's going back to the Mao era. Well, they never changed anything of the foundations that Mao established. They all admired Mao. They may have suffered, they and their families, from the Cultural Revolution, but that has only made them more determined not to have democracy. And what is democracy in the case of the PRC? It's understood to be the Cultural Revolution. The Cultural Revolution is supposed to illustrate what happens when you give ordinary people a say. That's what Mao did. He allowed ordinary people to criticize members of the Communist Party of China. It was a disaster. We will never go back to that. That's the response. So what am I trying to say? Dictators have a limited playbook. When you have separation of powers, becomes increasingly complex. Your legal system, your appointment of judges, your checks and balances, your constitution, how you vote, who votes, becomes an increasingly complex system where you must consult lawyers to find out what a president can and cannot do. In a dictatorship, that playbook is much more limited. So it seems to us as if Xi Jinping is going back to the fundamentals of Mao, but Mao 
went back to the fundamentals of Lenin. They all share that fundamental impulse, which is to control. And there's only that many ways in which you can control and make sure that power is not shared. You can either whack people on the head, you can shoot them, or you can try to constrain them more or less indirectly with some massive surveillance system. But ultimately, you must constrain them. Okay, Frank, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. And that's it for this week. I hope you'll join me again next week. And remember, if you don't already subscribe to the show, you can do so in any podcast app. Just follow the link at ft.com slash Rachman Review. Until next week, goodbye. <laughs>